Okay, we're on. Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Data Driven Podcast, sponsored by Expresso.ai. Expresso.ai is a lifecycle management platform for artificial intelligence and machine learning applications. It is built on an integrated set of frameworks and accelerators to help data scientists build cognitive solutions quickly and easily. If I could only pronounce that word, it would be better. On today's show, we are joined by Dr. Karen Nelson Field, the founder and CEO of Amplified Intelligence. Karen, how are you doing today? I'm great. How are you? <laughs> I probably can speak more clearly than that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I am. Um, I'm, I'm tired, actually. I woke up this morning at four o'clock, which is kind of a normal thing for me. How about you? So did I. So I set my alarm for four. Yeah. Uh, started my day at 4.30. Welcome to our world, people. <laughs> it's this weird world of entrepreneurship, right? I always feel like I'm planning today for what's going to happen three or four days in advance, maybe even a week in advance, if that makes sense. I just find there's just not literally not enough hours in the day, you know, and I have all these deadlines and... Yeah, I'm not sure I'm a planner like you. I try to be, but uh, usually it's every day I just have to deal with one foot in front of the other. Yeah, exactly. But how do you decide what to say no to? That's an excellent question. So at the beginning of my accidental entrepreneurship business journey, <laughs> I didn't really say much, no to much, if I'm honest, um, because I wasn't very clear on where we were headed. I knew... Right what I was interested in, um, but I didn't say a lot of no's. Um, and what that does is it gives you a bit of a, an understanding in all the different parts of the ecosystem um, that we're playing in, which at the time was just research um, and media research. Um, but now it's different. So now we have a really clear path around where we want to be. It's, it's much easier for me to say, actually, no, here's a different vendor for that. This is not our core. This is not the area we want to be in. And I'm very clear about that. Yeah, it's really interesting. So I kind of did the same thing when I first started this. This was maybe less accidental. I had a vision in my mind about what I want media to be, which is, will make this a really interesting conversation, I think. But I said yes to almost everything because I didn't know what it was meant to look like. I didn't know what the final shape was meant to look like. But now I think kind of like you, I'm at a stage where now I know exactly what I'm doing. And now when someone comes to me and says, hey, can you do this? I just say, I, I can't do that, actually. But I, I know someone I, who can. I love that you say now you know exactly what you're doing because I'm not sure I think I know exactly what I'm doing. I know where I want to be, <laughs> but uh, I'm probably being hard on myself. But, yeah, it's, an, it's an, a complete learning curve every single day. I feel pain in my head from the learning curve in my head. Every time. But so I said to you offline, I think entrepreneurs are the greatest people in the world. And I think your exact response was, I think they're all mad. In a way, I don't disagree with you, though. Oh, you know, I came from a tenured professor position and went, oh, no, that's way too easy. I I'll just do something crazy like, you know, have no clue on a day to day basis how I'm going to feed myself. No, I might as well do that. So I, I think that's crazy. But in all seriousness, you know, I even back then I knew. I won't go as far as to say I was born to be here to be solving a problem, but I knew that I had some expertise and I knew that I could do something with that. And right. I kind of went, you know what, here we go. Let's do it. Can you talk a little bit about what that background is? Like, how did you get to here? You said you were a professor, but you weren't always, yeah? 
So I'm actually not a career academic. I was a media girl when I was young. So I worked for News Corp. I did Diageo. I did all of the, oh, wow. you know, the FMCG and all those types of things. And work, you know, every every Australian works for Rupert Murdoch at some point in their life. <laughs> but then I'd already done a few degrees, and um, I was, you know, I, I love media. I, I've always loved media more so than creative, if I'm honest, from an advertising perspective. You know, here's my actual story. Had a couple of babies, <laughs> had them really close together. So it meant that I really was home. I couldn't go back to the executive. I had lots of staff at that point, 100 staff or something. And I couldn't go back to the job that I had with very, very small infant children and was offered a PhD scholarship. So I run an Australian uh, PhD scholarship and I thought, oh, I could, I could do that while they're sleeping, <laughs> you know, as you do. <laughs> So I did that and I decided to look at a media topic. So I wanted to understand where the targeting worked, if I'm really honest. So, and it was in the early days, sort of pre-social. So just before, you know, the likes of Facebook and and, um, early, early YouTube came on. And so I was looking at whether targeting was an efficient way to drive return on investment. So it was a segmentation PhD. And yeah, I went, all right, I'll do that. And lo and behold, I was actually pretty good at it. I was really passionate about it. And the the key thing for me was it led me to my postdoc. And my postdoc, I, I this is when you know the likes of Facebook just started to come in. And I went, and they were selling this dream, this dream that you know if someone likes it, they will become loyal and they will you know buy more from you. Right. And it just made me question. You know, I was trained at Ehrenberg Bass, which you know is very much about you know penetration over loyalty and you know you know advertising's not persuasive and all this sort of stuff and I went oh, I wonder if I could you know test the laws of brand growth and how that might relate to new media and over the course of my three-year postdoc I did that and I had a look at you know what engagement actually means and you know sort of tried to disentangle some of the the fluff that was digital metrics at that time, it sort of skyrocketed because the research was really solid. We found some sort of controversial findings. You know, I mean, I made 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 way my way to New York and started presenting that kind of work. And yeah, here I am today. So it kind of catapulted me as a media researcher because at the time, um, you know, even the likes of Facebook, as you might remember when they went to IPO. Yep really couldn't clarify their commercial position. So it was, that's, that's kind of how I got started. Yeah. I mean, I remember, obviously I was not in your space. I don't understand what media trading is. I don't understand the analytics around it. I'd love to know what you learned, not just in your PhD, but more, you know, in in your postdoc, you said you found out some really interesting things that were slightly controversial. I'd love to know what those things are, but I do remember when Facebook IPO'd and I was wondering is that really going to be that sticky kind of thing? Do you know what I mean? Like, is that really going to work? Yeah, that was an interesting time for me because um, I did actually, if in, in uh, looking back, I feel, wow, did I really say that? So I, I published some work during the quiet period of the IPO, you know, how they just yep. before actually rings the bell. And my findings were so hugely controversial that it was noted as having a bit of an impact in their less than stellar price. <laughs> so I feel a bit guilty, but um, that bounced back. A little. But, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, some of the findings in the early days, and it sort of still holds that that at the end of the day, reach is not free. 
um, and just building a bunch of, you know, likes or followers or, you know, whatever you, however you want to define communities doesn't mean that it'll nudge people to buy more. So there were, there were a whole lot of findings around things like, you know, in an average week. So at the time it was, you know, the Unilevers of this world and others that were spending a small fortune trying to acquire reach, uh, sorry, to acquire likes. And we kind of looked at the top 200, I think, from memory over a course of two years and found that in an average week, less than 1% of the fan pace even bothered to go back to the page. So it was a time when Facebook were really transparent with their metrics. Right. <laughs> and uh, we were able to um, use the metrics that they published and sort of disentangle on sharing to likes, to engagement and things like that. And and I don't think they had really thought through it that someone like me would sort of sit there and try and work it out. <laughs> and try to work and, it out. <laughs> Um, so those were the sorts of findings. And then, you know, following on from that, you know, a couple of years after, you know, the whole wave of free reach. So the concept of viral kind of became a thing. And the research that I did, I wrote a book on this, but the, the research I did at the time was that, you know, and this is kind of YouTube's era, yep. that, you know, just because you build something that's interesting doesn't mean that it will diffuse like a pandemic, <laughs> And it actually is the other way. So we, what we kind of found was that you actually have to pay, you have to you have to seed some, you have to seed the content up front for the long tail to kind of, you know, give you more reach if you like. Um, so it was kind of the opposite of what an average person thinks of viral. Most people, because of the word viral, I mean, it's a horrible analogy now, but I've often wondered, and I have not read your research, but now I'm inclined to do so, actually. I, I want to get this book because I want to understand this better because I operate in that space. And I'm often told you need a page that has 100,000 likes or 200,000 likes. But I, don't, I never thought that that drove engagement or stickiness, which is really important. And to be fair, if I understand what you're saying, and I want to ask you a question about a specific thing that happened on YouTube, so hopefully you'll remember this. I'm sure you will. But that virality itself isn't actually a thing. Things like things can be purposely spread around and that they can get paid for, but that things don't just spontaneously combust into virality. Do I understand that correctly? You are absolutely spot on. And it's very, 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 very rare that it is that the case. But even then, the the basis of virality comes from other platforms or other media celebrities that actually talk about it. So, so for example, you know, if Justin Bieber got a hold of your video and he plays it or he tweets about it or whatever, right. um, his, his followers, you know, are into the millions, hundreds of millions. So theoretically it's still diffusing negatively, which means that you need more eyeballs and there's fewer that share it. So right. you're, you're absolutely spot on. And that's kind of what the research showed. So the, com- the concept of virus, which, again, it's a horrible timing, is that it's one person and it spreads to many. Which naturally. Which is actually is naturally what it is in, an epi- you know, in, an in a kind of a pandemic. Right. Um, and, you know, marketers, as they do, steal from other sectors and they've stolen this concept. But if you actually have a look at how content moves it works the opposite so you know 10 people will view it eight people will share right you know five people will view it three people will share and so there's like this reverse there's a negative distribution so it's the opposite so you're 100 percent right 
So when I think about virality, I think about Gangnam Style. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I do because this had like over a billion or a billion and a half views. But if you listen to Psy interview, he said there was a massive strategy, both a paid strategy and an unpaid strategy around making it go viral. I'm wondering if yeah, you did any work on my, that. Yeah, that was in my book. So that's a classic example. Yeah. And we knew that. So I actually talk about that. So there was this paid strategy that sat behind it. And then the other one that people always sort of talk to me about is um, the Ice Bucket Challenge or the, is it the ALF? Um, So that went insane for a little while. And and I've been interviewed many times about that one. And it's a bit similar in that it wasn't a paid strategy like Psy, but because it had, again, I have to spend, you know, it's been 10 years since we (laughs) talked about viral. But I just remember... um, it was actually um, a charity that was published years before, but it didn't get any traction. And then what happened is, I think from memory, there was a, a golfer, like a fairly famous golfer, that actually attracted um, the disease. And then Oprah picked it up and talked about it. And then she got her friends involved, which actually I think was Justin Bieber and people like that. Could be. So, you know, you get you get five celebrities who have 100 million you know, followers, so to speak, yep. then by default, that is the paid distribution. Um, but but if you look within that content, it still would have diffused to nothing, which is exactly what happened. Yeah, because it always um, tails off, right? Yeah. So that's so that's kind of the next phase in my in my academic research. And then the third phase was sort of when, you know, going back to media proper when the MRC sort of came in and made some, um, you know, regulations around uh, what is deemed a saleable piece of inventory. So what, you know, the two seconds of time and 50 cent pixels. And, you know, I was right in the thick of it at that time and really felt that, you know, in fairness to the MRC, I get that they're kind of between a rock and a hard place, but I really felt- the MRC? Uh, Media Ratings Council. So they came in, uh, it's US-based, and they came in and said, you know, trying to regulate a very unregulated thing called the internet in terms of how to charge ads. They said you really only technically should be charging if your ad is 50% pixels on screen and also for a continuous, for two seconds of minimum, two seconds of time. So it brought some sort of regulation to this wild west that was you know money being thrown out of the door and for nothing so you know for advertisers it meant there was some sort of ability to say well at least some people might see it (laughs) but um for publishers it was a bit of a a kick in the teeth but at the same time you know it wasn't 100 percent pixels so so my point is that at the time i challenged that because i went well you know if an ad's not if an ad's 50% 50% on screen versus 100% on screen, surely the one that's 100% on screen will get more engagement or whatever the measure that is an ROI type measure, which led me to, okay, well, what's the top of the tree measure? Well, it'd have to be human attention and it'd have to be a verified opportunity to see if you like. And that's kind of the rest is history. So um, from there, I started to wonder if, I was actually employed um, on a big contract, and I can say it now because it's out of embargo by Unilever, and they wanted to they they were challenging the MRC standards, and they were like, "Well, we don't even know if YouTube, you know, delivers more ROI than Facebook and 
Twitter and Weibo and all, and they asked right. me to start to think about how I might measure cross-platform effectiveness. And that's what led me to, well, how the hell am I going to do that? Okay, I need a measure that someone isn't sort of stating, like it's not self-proclaimed, like a typical academic. I need, I need something that can go into, because it was three countries, I need something that's scalable. Oh, my God, I might need to think about how I could incorporate technology. And the best thing I could think of was, okay, some of the best studies are when you film people in in their home and sort of watch them during the day. You don't get them to say what they did, but you watch them through, you know, camera. Could I possibly integrate some sort of computer vision at scale? And that's when I went, okay, I need to do this for a living and not be an academic. (laughs) (laughs) That is an amazing story. And I remember, although the details are still fuzzy to me, and this must have been like six or seven years ago, although I think you'll agree that sometimes the years just kind of blur together. It's hard for me to remember, like, even what day it is sometimes. But I remember a bunch of big advertisers, Procter & Gamble, Unilever, some of your biggest advertisers globally, even JP Morgan started saying, okay, stop. We're going to stop these um, DSPs. We're going to stop the RTBs because we can't measure whether they're actually being effective. And there's so much fraud in that ecosystem that we don't know what we're paying for anymore. And they actually pulled it and they found that something like, I think it was JP Morgan who said like they were paying 400,000 different websites all this money and not getting any ROI on it. Do I remember that at all correctly? Yeah, I mean, and that's ongoing. So that's not new. Like no, that's no. that's a continuous thing that happens, you know, every six months, some big advertiser says enough. I mean, there's so many sides to the story and we're just one part of it. So we don't play in the fraud space. We play in the, you know, if an ad gets served, does someone even look space? So we pay, we play in um, and putting aside the bots and the fraud. If there's a human, assuming there's a human, are they even looking and does this vary across platform and are there... Is there, is there a way we can predict that? And, you know, why is someone looking at one platform and not another? And over the course of the last sort of four and a half years, what we've worked out and, you know, what our business has kind of jumped forward with is that there are actually predictive factors. So we know that there are factors of a, or functional factors of a platform that actually deliver or foster inattention versus attention and we can pretty much predict it now so we've uh, so fast forward four and a half years our technology is quite seamless and we've dropped it into six countries so far and collect attention data across multiple platforms and the patterns are which is great because when when a pattern generalizes it's real right right. so yeah we we pretty much can can predict (laughs) which format so you know with all the new all the new formats that are coming out from the different socials we can we can pretty much hypothesize which ones will get more attention or which ones don't and we're usually pretty right because it's pretty consistent can you define attention for people okay so what i like to say is i can't read your mind so attention in the true sense of the word is when someone actually stops focusing on the outside community and literally focuses on the stimuli or whatever it is in front of them, you know. But what? let's be honest, what we're doing is not understanding cognitive processing. And I think that's a really important distinction. So as okay. a vendor of attention, what I'm doing is I'm sort of trying to understand if someone is looking at something, whether they're 
half drunk or whether they're, you know, thinking about their morning, I can't tell you that. But you can't have a currency measurement using, you know, MRIs and things like that because it's just not scalable. So we made a decision, what's the next best thing? We know that someone has to see an ad or has to see something for them to be focused on it. So that's what we chose to do. So for us, we collect data that essentially is it's facial footage. So if we were, if you were using Facebook right now, I'd essentially be filming you through the device camera. If you were watching TV right now, I'd be filming you through a provided camera. And that then that footage comes back to our um, internal uh, machine learning stacks and it and it transposes it to whether you're looking straight at it, whether you're looking around it or whether you're not looking at it at all. Now, like I said, you might, because I can see you're looking straight at me, but you still might actually not be listening. <laughs> you are a man after all. <laughs> so, Come on. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to say that. No, it's hilarious. But, I love it. <laughs> Keep going. But, but my point is, you know, this is a far cry from the poor proxies that are out there at the moment. So some of the measures of attention that are out there is, you know, are things like time in view, you know, scroll, speed, yeah. things like that. But it, we can see in our own data because we collect those data points as well, but we can see that actually looking at an ad compared to device variables like time and view are very, very different. So you, you can have an ad in view, but be talking to your partner to the left, but the ad's right in front of you. So, so yeah, so that's, that's what we consider attention. So can you measure, so if you can measure whether I'm looking at something, right? So you said you want to measure, I want to make sure I get the terminology right here. If I see something, can you measure if I hear something as well? And is, does it matter if I see something and hear something at the same time? And the reason why I ask is because even though it's a tactic, you can tell in a way if someone's listening to you, if they can mirror back the things you're saying to them. Does that make sense? It does. And we have evolved our technology over time to do that. So just bear in mind, I'll say this up front, we're GDPR compliant and we don't film you and listen to you unless you ask, oh, you're happy for us to. <laughs> the technology is designed to understand whether sound is on or off in that platform for the ad format, but it's also designed for volume. And we also have just recently changed it so that we can tell if someone's wearing earpods or is connected via some sort of headphones or something, headphone jack. Um, So, and it does make a difference. So sound is what we call an attention trigger. And it definitely sort of helps the return on investment in terms of you know, the uplift or whatever the measures are at the other end that you want to connect it to. So you said you learned a lot about which platforms or which styles of content delivery worked and which ones don't. You said you're operating in six countries right now? Yep. There are just so many questions. Are those six countries similar? In other words, is it just like the bunch of Nordic countries or a bunch of, you know what I mean? Like I said, Australia, New Zealand, the US, England, you see what I'm doing, right? All very similar types of people all speaking the same language. Or is it... Like Indonesia, Singapore, Vietnam, China, or where the people there are just so different and their lifestyles are different, or does it work anywhere? So the technology that we have at the moment is iOS-based, and we've done that for a reason. So if you were to be a part of a panel, for example, the accuracy to which our gaze works, is it works because we've trained 80 iOS devices against the mathematics of the camera 
to the ad point, for example. Got it. So anyone who tells you that they've got a really accurate solution on mobile is largely lying unless they've done it for many, many years because it's a lot of training data. So we've done it on iOS for the minute, but we are literally in the throes of training it. So we've we've collected over four years of training data. We're literally training um, Android devices as we speak. So the short answer is they are similar countries. So it's uh, Germany, Austria, Switzerland, England or UK, US and Australia. Got it. So I would agree that they are sort of similar. Within that, though, the ethnicity of the groups is quite large. And if I'm really honest, we do see some differences yeah. with different ethnicity groups within the attention. And I'm actually planning to publish something off the back of that soon. The next phase for us will to be go to go to Asia. But I don't see it so different that... I think what will happen is that they'll either pay slightly less or slightly more attention, but the the mediating variables, so the stuff that happens on on the platforms, right. will still be constant. So, Fair so so we see. So I I I don't predict that to change. I think there'll be an overall slightly less or slightly more attention, but not not so different that it's the opposite. Yeah, I mean, it's the nuances that really, and the subtleties that interest me, right? I love those small differences. For somebody who's been living out of his home country or birth country for now more than 30 years, I just find those little things really interesting. Oh, look, and that's all, that's what helps planning too, you know, media planning. So, you know, we know that different types of, different times of the day, attention changes. We know that different demographics do make a bit of a difference. But what I will say is that, marketers do have the wrong notion of how much attention people pay to advertising. So if you think these differences, you know, it's the difference between five seconds and 20 seconds, you're wrong. It's probably the difference between five seconds and six seconds. And, you know, but in the world of advertising, if you get an extra second, it adds value because we know that the amount of seconds, more seconds leads to memory. So, you know, the longer an ad is in front of your face, the more likely it is for you to remember it for longer. Right. So, you know, for me, an extra second is still very valuable. What has to be. I mean, it's simple math tells you that one second added on to five seconds is a 20% increase and and 20% of anything is huge, right? So that's That's fair. Yeah. You don't think you have to be a mathematician to figure that out, but doing a little bit of math wouldn't hurt. What's the downside of attention? Like, what's the downside of trading on it? So the downside of trading on it is that our systems aren't quite ready for it to be a 100% a currency at this point. So yeah. how we so, – so just by way of background, so when I went into this business as a researcher, I sort of worked out that I needed to build technology for me to be able to get the data that I needed, Right. Right. And that's done and dusted. But about a year and a half ago, I made a decision that I wanted to be a part of a change. And the change is is needed because not all reach is equal and there's no transparency that sits behind that. That's the that's the true. And and advertisers are are in revolt over it. And, you know, the whole world is going, you know, reach metrics of rubbish and, you know, it's all broken. And we went, well, we're sitting on this data that's pretty valuable and it's telling us that this platform and that platform are different because of these reasons. And we made a decision we should actually push for to trade against the data that we use. 
However, given my academic background, I didn't want to rush into it being the holy grail and that's the only measure you should use forever, I'm in. So my approach is it needs to be a layer. So how we approach it is you can use this data as a weighting layer against your planning and your buying because at the moment, reach and frequency is the trading currency and that's as pure as simple as it is. And it will probably be like that, quite frankly, for a very long time. So attention is, attention is, I know this is a weird word, but a relative value metric. So it sort of says if if 1,000 eyeballs on this platform is not the same as 1,000 eyeballs on this platform, if we use attention, that will give us an index. And that's and that's how we play it. So it's it's a it's a metric that's designed to fit within systems to just kind of be a relative value proposition. So for somebody who used to trade stocks and bonds in an automated way, right? One of the things we did was we used to go back and take 10, 20, 30 years of data and back backtest the things we thought were gonna happen against what had already happened. Right? To try to find out barring, you know, the economic or the sort of profitability of any particular company, just look at what the trading told you about it. Can you do things like that with attention as using attention as a weight, right? You said it's not the only metric you look at, but you mentioned sort of reach and frequency, but if you weight it with attention and then go back and look, is it possible to do that to see if it even more verifies what you already think? Yep. And we are doing some of that. It's a good idea to go backwards, actually. Um, What we are kind of using it for is attention-adjusted metrics. So things like budgeting. So, you know, share of voice is a big way, share of voice, share of market is a big way that, you know, advertisers make some decisions around what their budgets should be next year. So my call out is that, you know, anything that uses reach can have an attention adjustment metric applied and one of that that we're working on at the moment is is budgeting because for example if you if you look at what your competitors spend let's just say it's a million bucks but they spend it on platform a and your million dollars is spent for spent on platform b if platform b is poorer performing your million dollars doesn't get you the same return and so your market share will likely decline or um, your underspending. So those are the sorts of metrics that can be used. Have you seen situations where you take some just existing data, what is you said, reach and frequency, you take, take reach and frequency data, and that data tells you very obviously, you must be on this platform, you must budget this amount of money, again, with all the other things being equal, right? And then when you weight it by attention, do you see like really kind of well known places or well known strategies just go, that's not working? Do you know what I mean? Where the waiting just goes like this oh, and it surprises your advertisers like, wait a second. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. And a hundred percent. And uh, so we, so without telling you too much, um, <laughs> we only in late November built out um, a planning tool, a beta trial of a planning tool. And we've got long way to go. So the data was delivered. It's fairly simple. And we ended up, that ended up in 21 countries, Michael. But wow. um, one of our customers who bought a subscription to that data has come back and said, oh, my God, I have to show you some of what we've done and how we've adjusted our planning and we 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 want to write a paper on it. So there is something coming out on that. But, I mean, we see that all the time. And, you know, it's um, the, the sad part for me is the constant proving out 
that someone who that 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 if you do see an ad versus if you don't see an ad, it has an impact. That's the thing that stresses me. Um, To me, it just seems bleeding obvious. But you know, the proof points. Uh, But you know, we're going through we're going through a major change in our measurements. So I think even you know, a few years back, it was predicted that this this cycle of measurement is changing and measurement version five is coming. And no one could really pick what that might look like. But now, you know, the attention economy, particularly in the last year, has been sort of in hyperdrive. Everyone's kind of coming out and going, oh, this is what it is. But I think, you know, I think getting it to a point where it becomes a standalone is coming but we've got some work to do. So, for example, I don't personally like the concept of an attention CPM. I think CPM is 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 decided essentially by the advert by the by the publisher. Right. And when I was young, CPM was a relative, like it was relative to performance. So it was relative to if you if you want more reach, you pay more money. Pretty right. simple. Yep. Right. And what we see in our data is that. That CPMs all over the place, so it doesn't relate at oh, all. Which I never to thought attention. it did anyway. Go ahead. So I'm feeling like we're too early for an attention CPM, and I think that's a little bit like it's it's not very, it's not thinking about the future. What to me that says that we're trying to trade on money and pushing the ecosystem down, whereas I'm still thinking actually we should pay more if it's high attention. So so there's a little bit of a across purposes in the industry at the moment about about bringing an attention CPM in. So there's a two-sided marketplace here. And, and again, tell me where I get the definitions wrong. And I'm going to make it very simple because it's just easier for people to understand. There's an advertiser over here and a place to advertise, called a platform, called whatever you want over here. These, these advertisers use, I guess they're using amplified intelligence to try to study that data and figure out where they should be doing it, weighting the stuff with the attention that you're talking about. But the other side of that is that the media companies can also understand how to better build a platform that gets attention. Do you know what I mean? So if there are three outlets over here where they can do this, sorry, and there are two advertisers or one advertiser in the world and they have to choose between these three platforms, is there like a technological arms race that's going on between the platforms to create the most attention? Is that possible to learn as well and then change? So you are you couldn't be more spot on and we're right in the thick of both sides. So in fairness, um, there are some platforms that have, and I won't mention them, who recognize that attention is a metric that's not going away. So they're going, okay, we need to think about how to build formats within our platforms that we can say, you know, here's a format that's low attention, get that, that's just part of the deal, but here's part of it, here's a format that we charge more for that is still part of our, you know, our sisterhood, but it's um, it's more premium. So and it gets more attention. So, so to be honest, that is happening. So we we're getting engaged often by platforms for that very reason. And my job is not to be critical of a platform over another. It was a bit more like that in the early days, um, but it was more me going, you know, check this out. Look at the vast difference between right. platform A and platform D. But now there is. I don't know about an arms race, but, you know, most of the majors are going, actually, it's important. And it's important for our ecosystem. I think that's pretty important. Can I guess that something like, and again, this is early early days, but at the beginning sort of of this, these new platforms, Huffington Post was a place where people went and they had a ton of attention, it seems to me. 
And then at some point it just vaporized. I, I can't remember who bought it. Maybe it was, I can't remember. Just can't remember. But then there was BuzzFeed, which again exploded because it seemed to be getting a lot of attention, but then they kind of just tailed off as well. Are they missing all of, and not these platforms particular, but are there some platforms out there that are missing this idea of the attention economy and just aren't paying attention to the type of research and the type of services that you're selling? Um, I think the platforms you're referring to are platforms that um, we would call clickbait yeah, no, I, for attention. So I agree, I agree, I agree. It, it, it's, so my point is the measurement of that kind of attention is flawed because, like I said, human attention and time in view is very different. Yep. So in on average, just on average, you know, an ad time in view that you think someone's paying 10 seconds of attention for, you're lucky if you get two in terms of real human attention. So I think those types of platforms are really not suited to return on investment proper because the measurements that they use are proxies and poor proxies at that. But, you know, I think I think the, I think that the industry as a whole is kind of waking up to that. Yep. And I think there is some pushback well and truly on the ethical side of that kind of attention where, you know, we're just being bombarded with rubbish content and then we switch yeah. out from ads anyway. And right. then that means that we don't, you know, there's less reach and, you know, so it's completely ruining the system. So we call that, so we're a part of what I'm calling the positive attention economy, which is about, you know, pushing CPMs up, not pushing them down right. and offering, you know, humans the choice if they want to subscribe and they want an ad free they pay more or if you know the content i mean there's um soren patenlay in uh mars global is a fantastic advocate for the value of human attention but he does it from a creative perspective so his whole angle is you know if you build it your customers will be happy and is that's a good thing for mars you know we want our customers to be happy so he he's all about you know, measuring how attention getting his creative is, but it's really more about are we being good to our customers and giving them good content or are we just giving them crap content? So, yeah. so yeah, so he's part of that as well. So this is a little bit of a different angle, but, and I want to give you two examples. I used to think, and I think actually this often that, you know, these guys and gals that you know, sail around the world alone or like take a rowboat from one side of the Atlantic to the other, that when they get back on dry land, it's hard for them to interact with regular people because regular people haven't been through that struggle. And I also say that like my architect who built my house in Tokyo, that it's not his job, right? It's just his life. And that whenever he sees an open piece of land or an open space, he thinks, what can I put in there that would add beauty to this environment? And I wonder with you, you're so deep in this data, and you're so deep in your understanding of media. Can you look at media without thinking about all the data behind it and get away? Because your brain What's just so processes, you know what I mean? What is so funny, and listeners, this was not pre-rehearsed. What's a cracker about that is my husband's a yachtsman and he's an architect. <laughs> so I... <laughs> so I just am listening to you describe my husband's, you know, Virgo, you know, kind of detailed brain that can't rest because there's a vacant block of land and what can he do? But then right. he wants to start around the world. So it's a bit funny. But um, on the flip side, yeah, I I do. I can't look at it the same. And right. to me, 
I feel I sometimes I feel like an imposter. I feel like this is actually really basic stuff. If you build a platform that sort of encourages actually people to watch it, then it's good for advertising. <laughs> right, like and I, you know, <laughs> seems to make sense without any necessary research. But yeah, so sometimes I feel like you know you don't need four degrees for that. But I I just go, it's actually pretty basic, really. Um, so, yeah, so there are times when I go, am I just the world's worst overthinker living with an architectural yachtsman? <laughs> <laughs> no, because because it's all backed up with data. That's the whole point, right, is that you're, yeah. you're backing it all up with data, and that's what people want. So when your customers or even their platforms look at it, they're like, wait a second, this is all backed up with data, which is why I thought this idea of using attention as a weight was really – it's a coefficient, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, what I love about that, again, is because my training was Ehrenberg Bass, you know, I don't know if you are familiar with that institute, but the concept of Ehrenberg Bass Institute is that generalizability is the building blocks for meaningful results. So most academics can find a significant p-value in any single study, right? And you right. can make something, you can, oh my God, look what I found. It's significant. Let's do a paper. But when you see patterns that repeat over and over, even if the data isn't perfect, but the patterns still hold yeah. across different boundary conditions, that's when you know you're onto something. And that's why I'm super confident because I'm always asked, you know, sample sizes. I mean, we have thousands, so it's not you know, small, but, you know, do I do full statistical regression coefficients on every single piece of data that we have? No, because you can literally see the patterns in front of you that, you know, this platform has this many pixels and has this much coverage and, you know, scroll speeds this and that's what the attention is. So it's predictable. So that's what I love about what we do because this big data, when you actually step back from it, it's actually really simple. Yeah. Can I ask you this? So, I, I mean, Apple announced a couple of days ago their big changes to privacy and trackability in iOS 14.5. What is the impact of that? Does that have impact on the type of stuff that you do and you study? No? Okay. I'm just curious. No. So, so we are GDPR compliant. We have yeah. a triple opt-in process. So, so when you, as a panel member, make a decision for us to track you, it's not through cookies. It's through your device. And... We the the app becomes redundant as soon as you close it down, but you you opt in. So no, it doesn't actually affect us at all. Right, but does it affect the other people participating in that in that ecosystem? In other words, does it matter that they're doing this or not really? So from a panel perspective? No, not from a panel perspective. From an advertiser perspective. Oh, there's huge implications That's you know, on all those types of technologies changing for advertisers in terms of tracking and targeting and you know, API integrations and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. But from our side, that sort of thing doesn't really have any so. impact. In fact, if anything, it's it's nice because, you know, the cookies becoming extinct means that, you know, people on an individual level are harder to track. So, right. you know, the world is looking for Another measures measure. that can be yeah. layered, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's kind of the game we're in. So... Yeah, so it's kind of an interesting. We're we're at a really interesting time as a business. Um, you know, the category has is is just beginning, and we've been at we've I, I you know I say myself I feel like we've I've written books on this, and 
I feel like we've had a role to play in pushing this category, but, you know, it's at the perfect intersection where, you know, advertisers are distressed about what's happening, like you said before, about fraud and, and uh, you know, ridiculous metrics that mean nothing. And then on top of that, you've got, you know, tracking abilities changing. So, yeah, so so, really, so ask me again in a year. <laughs> Let's go back and go. I will, I will. <laughs> yeah. So I want to ask you one more thing and then I'll let you go because I know time is at a premium for you as well. When you're sitting here thinking like in a quiet moment, which if you ever have one, I'd be amazed, but what is the sort of medium and long-term vision for amplified intelligence? Um, I laugh because <laughs> maybe I'll need all of your viewers, listeners to sign NDAs, but no. Look, so my I genuinely think I can play a role in this broken ecosystem. I'm yeah. getting old, Michael, so I can't see me around in 20 years you know, being a big player, I, I just think I'm at a moment in time where the work that we've done and the rigor we've done, the rigor we've put behind it, tells a story, tells a narrative, pushes for change. We are doing that. Where the business will play a role is in both the planning and the buying side. So, you know, using the data we have, because of the depth of the technology we can drop into most countries and soon to be Asia, people will be able to use this data and make some change. And that's kind of what we started to do with this MVP late November. So, so again, ask me in 12 months, but I see we'll play a small role in transitioning a measurement industry into something that's a little bit more meaningful. That's what I see us doing. Okay. I don't know what else to say. That was awesome. I want to thank you, <laughs> Dr. Karen Nelson-Field, the founder and CEO of Amplified Intelligence. That was insane. Thank you. Thank you.